Let's say I had to do it all over again, and I changed everything. Let's say I gave myself over a little more to faith and a little less to vision. Let's say I could take back the first lie that broke a heart. Let's say that in settling for something smaller, I in fact gained something larger. Let's say that everything I did, I never did. Let's say that everything I never did, I did. Let's say that having exploited chaos in terms of my own imagination, I learned to trust it in terms of my life. Let's say love won every struggle over cowardice. Let's say I didn't think so damn much. Let's say I dared to suspend myself in the moment between breaths. Let's say I found a way to say one comforting word to her the night she cried, or even to just reach over and touch her. Let's say I had the courage of my sensuality, thus overcoming my depravity. Let's say I had an emotional fortitude to match the tenacity of my ambitions. Let's say my dreams were not so attached to the tangible rewards that I was smart enough to know didn't matter. Let's say I was incapable of despair, because despair is not a grief of the heart, but a grief of the soul. Let's say that sometime, somehow, not in this life, not in this millennium, but in another, one of your own, that begins tonight and ends a thousand years ago, you'll have another chance. Steve Erickson is the author of Days Between Stations, Rubicon Beach, Tours of the Black Clock, Amnesia Escape, and The Sea Came In at Midnight. He's the founder and editor of the literary journal Black Clock. His latest novel is Our Ecstatic Days. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks. Steve, let's talk about apocalypse. You seem to enjoy apocalypse quite a bit. How many times are you going to destroy L.A.? (laughs) (laughs) Well, as long as it keeps coming back, I can keep destroying it, I guess. I... uh, yeah, I I do have a fascination for for chaos, I guess, and what that comes from, I'm not sure. I grew up in L.A., and uh, L.A. is L.A. for some reason seems a landscape that kind of naturally lends itself to transformation and destruction and breaking it down and building it up again. And I think that you know that probably has informed my my writing in some way. Apocalypse is an interesting topic in your fiction because it's not the kind of apocalypse that we usually associate with that word, the biblical overtones. Your apocalypses tend to be more personal, don't they? Yeah, I think that I think that's true. I think that my my books rarely begin with apocalypse, even though I I can understand that to the reader it must seem that way. It, the books will begin usually with a, a character and, and his or her story in a given situation. And, and the, the apocalypse or the chaos or the landscape around that character and that story tends to reflect what some, something going on internally. It sort of becomes reflective of the interior psychodrama. So I think that in the scheme of my books, God and the devil are often replaced by order and chaos, and they tend to be more you know, morally neutral than God or the devil. And so the apocalypse does not have that kind of biblical connotation that you're talking about. Stanislaw Lem, a Polish science fiction writer, once talked about what he called the pericolypse, mm-hmm. which was an apocalypse that had already come to pass but had been generally unnoticed mm-hmm. in the haste and waste of 
everyday life. And you seem to deal with that quite a bit, particularly in The Sea Came In at Midnight, in which one of the main characters has charted a whole room full of apocalypses. Right, and he's made this this kind of apocalyptic calendar. And as you say, he's charted incidents, not for their traumatic value, but for the value of their senselessness. And he's also pinpointed various ruptures in history where something began that that nobody was really aware of at the time, which is, you know, along the lines you're talking about with Lem. One of the things that interests me about your writing is what you do with literary technology. Though your work often deals with the futures and alternate presence and some oddments of history, and it's often tagged as science fiction, I don't think of it so much as science fiction in terms of the subject, but I do think what you do with literary technology is very science fictional. Let's talk a little bit about your last two novels, The Sea Came In at Midnight and Our Ecstatic Days. The Sea Came In at Midnight is almost a nautilus shell of a a novel. It keeps recursing back into itself. Could you talk a little bit about how you conceived of and created that novel? Well, you know, the the truth is I don't I, I don't do a lot of conceiving at the outset. I don't write from an outline. I don't write from notes. I begin with a story, and the book finds its own structure. And in the case of the Sea Came in at Midnight, the story the stories keep circling back on onto each other. And it just when I began writing the book, I I didn't I didn't know it it was going to do that. I, I sort of knew where the book was going to begin, and I knew where it was going to end because at the end it comes back to where it began. But all the spirals that take place within the book come to me so naturally that, if anything, I have to kind of, at some point, I've got to kind of put a lid on it. I can spiral this thing out ad infinitum to the point that I, I worry it, it might seem contrived. One of the things I did become conscious of in the writing of that novel. And I wrote, I wrote this novel pretty quickly, actually. I mean, the, uh, the Sea Came In at Midnight, that is. I, one of the things I did become conscious of as the book takes on this constantly looping structure was that a, a lot of the loose ends you think are going to get tied up don't. And a lot of the ones that you don't think are going to get tied up do. And I find that in the process of writing, for me, there is this this, this sort of constant tension between the order and chaos we were talking about just a minute or two ago, uh, where I start out in chaos, and at some point into the writing of the book, when I begin to understand what the book is about, an order begins to impose itself, and then somewhere near the very end, I feel compelled to, to shake it all up again. Control issues play an important part in your latest book, Our Ecstatic Days. And this, I think, goes back to this idea of order and chaos. There is the orderly side of my brain that that kicks in at a certain point. And, you know, when, when that happens, I can become very meticulous about what I'm doing. So it's, it's really a constant tension between the two. And it really helps keep the reader going. As a, in terms of a reading experience, you generate a tension with that conflict between the chaos and order. Well, I hope so. I, I'm speaking for, for myself. I know really good writers who outline everything before they start writing, and that's the, the method of their madness. And um, in my case, I, you know, for, for the book to be alive for me, I need to be open to all the possibilities while I'm I'm writing it and, and open to the same possibilities that I would hope the reader is when he or she is is reading it so that 
at some point, the story and characters do begin making their own choice. I've written stories before where I thought, when I get to this point in the story, this character is going to do something. He's, he's going to make a phone call. And then I, you know, by the time I got to that point in the story, he makes the phone call, but he hangs up the phone before the other person answers. And that whole conversation I thought these two people were going to have goes out the window because the character has said to me, I don't want to make this phone call. I don't want to have this conversation. At some point in the writing of a novel, if the novel's any good at all, it takes on its own life and it does start dictating its own choices. And, you know, I think the writer's got to listen to that. Musical forms play a part in your fiction. To a certain extent, as I read Our Ecstatic Days, it almost seemed to me like the extended, remixed 12-inch version of The Sea Came In at Midnight. Hmm. Did you conceive of it in that way? Yeah, when I began writing Our Ecstatic Days, it did become clear to me pretty quickly that this was a book that was told and sung in uh, women's voices. And there's even a part of the book where Los Angeles has been covered by a lake, and the lake is filled with kind of singing snakes. They're called melody snakes. And and I had a list of songs that at one point I I even uh, considered including with the book. And they were all real songs written and sung by women. So there was a kind of musical, a, a musical identity the book had for me very early on. One thing that seems to play an important part in your books is your dislike of chronology. The clock goes from 1018 to 1019 to 1020. It rarely does so in your books. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That's probably the influence of Faulkner, actually. I remember reading, I think it was Go Down Moses when I was a kid, and I think that's the book that the bear appears in. And Faulkner, Faulkner's stories were told not by the chronology of clocks, but by the chronology of memory. And for whatever reason, that, that made a lot of sense to, to me. That, that made a big impact on me, which I think is al- always the case when you know, a writer is influenced by other writers that that influence is usually due to, to some some bell that has been rung by some book you read so something comes into focus some clarity takes shape and whether it was from growing up in the time I did or or the place I did or or just some something innate to me that scrambling of of time made sense you know, I don't. I really don't do it to be difficult. I um, I do it because some truth that the story is trying to get at becomes clearer when the story is being told in a different way. And I guess I always hope, probably futilely, but I always hope that the reader will just go with that. I worry that too often the reader is trying to figure it out and trying to locate himself or herself in terms of, of, as you say, the chronology of clocks, when I would hope that the reader just sort of surrenders to the chronology of the story. Let's talk a little bit about memory. Memory is, in a sense, the way we tell stories, the story of our lives, to ourselves. And it plays a very important part in your novels. You have memory hotels in Tokyo, which you rendered so convincingly, I had to look up to see that they didn't actually exist. 
What made you create memory hotels in Tokyo? This is another example of how things can, can be going on in your own work that you don't really become aware of until all the evidence begins to mount up. As you say, memory has become this theme in my books in a way that I, I never necessarily set out to make the case. But from the very first novel, Days Between Stations, you've got a character who's an amnesiac. And many of the stories, I have to imagine that part of this is, is a function of getting older. Many of the stories, as I, I write more of them and as they get older, do become cast through the prism of memory, simply because I think that memory, kind of like what we were saying about time, memory becomes a more potent reality to most of us than what actually might have happened. And memory be, kind of becomes the collective waking dream that we're all a part of. As far as the memory hotels in Tokyo, if you've ever been to Tokyo, but it's a, it's a very strange city. It, next to or along with Los Angeles, it may be the strangest city I've ever been been in, where past and, and present and future do seem to all kind of exist in the same moment. And you know, I was fascinated, for instance, unless I completely misunderstood this, to learn when I went to Tokyo that addresses of buildings on a given street were ordered uh, according to which building was the oldest and then and which was the newest that is the addresses are not are not sequential so that you can necessarily find them the addresses are fixed to a place's location in terms of past and present and a future and and particularly given the kind of stereotypical orderliness of the Japanese. This seemed strangely chaotic to me, and yet it also made a kind of a sense. And so the idea of memory hotels in Tokyo just was a kind of natural invention. You also have a drug in your latest book, Our Ecstatic Days, that you call Lapsinth that enables the characters to jet about their own chronology. Right, and, uh, and kind of induce a, a lapse of memory or or chronology, or, or, or personal time. And also, I really want to talk to you, there's an absolutely fascinating section in our ecstatic days that's a journey through a memory hotel. This is a common memory technique to create a building and associate items that you want to remember with certain specific parts of the building. Were you thinking of that when you wrote this section of the book? Yeah, uh, but again, I mean, if you had asked me 100 pages sooner whether I was going to write that, I wouldn't have known. That was a good example of, of me taking the same journey that the uh, reader does. I had gone away to a, a writer's colony to work on the book, and it was back in New Hampshire. And it was in the middle of summer. It was unbelievably hot and uh, humid, so I would, to, to get any work done, I would uh, have to get up early in the day and write before the heat set in. And Maybe the heat just got to me or something, but that, that section when I wrote it sort of appeared to me unforeseen in much the way it does to the, the reader. And that brings us to one of the more entertaining and interesting parts of our ecstatic days, the typographic conventions, because that is typeset rather peculiarly, as is much of the book. And also that brings us to the sentence. The sentence, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, as you were actually... Do you write in longhand? No. Okay. So as you were creating this book on your word processor laptop, 
were you doing the same kind of typesetting that we see on the pages? The book is a reproduction of my manuscript, literally. That is, Simon & Schuster shot a PDF file of each manuscript page and reproduced it for uh, the book. And so you're doing this in Quark? or I, I was just using Word, you know. Really? And let me tell you, it made me a little bit crazy. I can imagine. It's very sophisticated. I would have expected it would have required something like Quark or yeah. well, PageMaker. Well, probably somebody a lot more computer savvy than I could have done this in a tenth of the time. But in my case, it involved literally moving lines around on a given page. And that, too, was something, the sentence you're, you're talking about, which I, I'm always reluctant to say too much about for and, the reader. And don't okay. say too much about it, but tell us a little bit about it. I'll just say there is a point in the book about 80 pages in when the main character goes down a hole at the bottom of a lake. And something happens to the rest of the book that affects the rest of the book in a fairly dramatic way and affects the way a person reads the book in a fairly dramatic way. And until I got to that hole at the bottom of the lake myself, I had no idea I was going to do this thing that happened. So that's another example of how something sort of presents itself and um, you have to kind of go with it. Having gone with it, it opened the door to a lot of of other possibilities, both good and bad. I mean, I, I actually tend to be very wary of books that do strange things in type or what, you know, I suppose some people call semiotics or, or, or that kind of thing because I think it, you know, it's, it's a lot easier and more fun to play around with type than it is to do the hard work of telling a story about about characters. And once I sort of opened up the door to all of these possibilities, it became important to me that I find a new sense of self-discipline. The fact of the matter is there are, are probably more things I didn't do than there are things that I did, because in each case where I'm doing something unconventional with topography or text, I wanted to be sure that it it served the larger purpose of creating the world of the book and and drawing the reader into that world. I want to talk a little bit about the reading experience of your books. When you write these books, do you have an idea of how you want the reader to approach them? I'll say a couple things about that, one of which is a reiteration of what I think I've already said. I kind of want the reader to go on the trip with me. And that, again, is another reason I don't want to figure it all out before I begin. For all of the havoc with chronology that, that my books evoke, I write books from beginning to end because I want to have a sense of how the reader is going to, is going to read the book. I guess the second thing is, and this too I guess is a a reiteration of what I said before, I worry that that readers try too hard with my books and and that in trying too hard they find the books more daunting than I want them to be. I I would rather the reader just sort of succumb to the logic of, of the book and go with it and not be trying to literalize it in his or her own mind treat the books as very superficial, shallow books that, uh, that all, all exist on the surface. And the faster you, you, you read them, probably the better. Your books are simultaneously sunny and entertaining, yet 
dark, there's a certain darkness. How do you balance that tension? Do you do that internally as you write out each sentence? I'm glad you see the sunny side of these books. Some people don't. Uh, And it varies from reader to reader because there are some readers who find these books hard and other people who find the books more accessible. I would hope they're, they're more accessible. I would hope that they're not daunting. And, you know, from a thematic standpoint, the dark and the light are kind of, I guess they're just kind of me. I have to think that the dark side of these books and the idealistic side that kind of coexist in them is reflective of of my own sensibility. We're speaking with Steve Erickson. His new book is Our Ecstatic Days. Steve, let's talk about science fiction. Your books have a lot of aspects of science fiction in them, but they never read like genre fiction. And as I said earlier, I think your science fiction seems to be come more across in the way you monkey with literary technology, chronology, character viewpoint than in the way you theorize or create a world or talk about the future. Tell me a little bit about how you feel about the genre of science fiction and where you fit in or don't fit in. Well, I, I'm I'm sure my uh, publisher would love it if these books were more strictly science fiction. I'd be selling a lot more books and making a lot more money because uh, genre fiction is what the publishing business loves, and uh, books that don't quite fit in, into a niche or, or neither fish nor fowl, which tend to describe my books, are more difficult. I read s- some science fiction as a kid. Who did you read? Well, I read all the all the usual suspects. This was the 1960s, so I was reading, I was reading Heinlein and Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and people like that. And, and the truth is, I, a lot of it I, I didn't care for. I mean, I, I you know I I wasn't a big fan of the Dune books or anything. But but certainly a couple of the writers who who struck a real chord were Philip K. Dick and, and Theodore Sturgeon, and probably because they were writers who were less concerned with technology and the ramifications of technology, which I hasten to add, I think is a completely valid thing to be writing about. It's just not something that, that particularly interests me. In the case of Dick and Sturgeon, for the most part, they weren't writing about those, those things. They were writing, to get back to the earlier point, in Dick's case, they were writing about the nature of memory and the nature of humanity and the nature of God and the nature of reality and the nature of sexuality in the case of Sturgeon. That made a, a real impression on me. And crosswire Dick and Sturgeon with people like Borges and Marquez and Pynchon, and that, that's kind of where I come out the other end. I can't deny that science fiction has had some bearing on what I do. And I think that in some of my earlier writing before I became published, I I resisted that. And when I stopped resisting in the case of my first of my first published novel Days Between Stations, which took on that kind of transformed landscape aspect, I found whatever is my real you know, vision or voice. Let's talk a little bit about doubles and opposites. You mentioned Borges. He does doubles and opposites quite often. 
and you think also of Lewis Carroll going right, down right. through the rabbit hole. Tell us a little bit about how you use doubles and opposites, parents and children, as as that as well in your novels, and well, particularly in your latest novel. Yeah, I mean, in in the latest novel, uh, the main character finds out early on that there is another character with her name living on the other side of this this lake that is formed in the middle of of Los Angeles. At some point, she sails out to um, the building where this other uh, Kristen, that's her name, where where this other Kristen lived. Most of the building is now underwater, and she finds this other Kristen's room and or, or apartment, rather. She goes in, and, and it's clear that uh, this other Kristen, like our our main narrator has a son. The apartment is very similar. Things are tacked up on, on the walls in a similar way. But it's not exactly the same. I mean, things that are tacked up on the walls aren't quite the same. The sun isn't quite the same. I have to imagine this comes out of that tension we've talked about between chaos and order and dark and light and all of those kinds of opposites. I'm fascinated by it, but I, I also am wary of the way it can become a little too pat. So the other Kristen is a lot like ours, but not exactly like ours. As we get uh, farther into the certain other dualities present themselves, and I guess I'm constantly, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of constantly playing them off against each other, hopefully without it becoming contrived or calculated in a strictly dualistic fashion. Let's talk a little bit, too, about one of the main points of your latest novel, The Loss of a Child. It haunts both books, The Sea Came in at Midnight and this new novel. Tell us where and why and how did you bring that theme to life? How did you discover that within these books? This, again, is an interesting case where, like the theme of memory that you asked me about a few moments ago, it's sort of been running throughout all of my books, actually. I mean, in in Days Between Stations, a young woman in the early pages of the book leaves her child for a night, and and the child later dies, and she's haunted by the loss of this child. In Rubicon Beach, a a young woman living in the jungles of South America loses a father. In Tours of the Black Hawk, um, uh, the main character's uh, uh, child and and the mother of his child go out a, a, a window in um, in Nazi Vienna. In Arctex, you've got a very important and and estranged relationship between a young mother who, in fact, is is an incarnation of Sally Hemings and her her daughter. In Amnesia Scope, the narrator at one point ruminates at, for, for, for a number of pages about his father. I never, I never um, saw this until the last book or two. I didn't see it until I became a father. Okay, uh, that's what was going to be my question. Yeah, but, but, but it was there long before I became a father. It was there, you know, it, it was there in, in my first novel, which I wrote 15 years before I became a father. Um, and I don't know where, where that came from. I don't know what that's about. I can't see anything in my own life that it's, it's uh, reflective of. But it certainly came into focus 
once I became a father. In the case of, of the new book, and to refer back to the duality we were talking about, one of the revelations of parenthood is not only how it explodes all of your definitions of love, but how it explodes all, all of your definitions of terror. You have a great quote in there, which is when one of the mother thinks, if God wants to punish me, then my prayers have given him a pretty good idea of how to go about it. And now, and now God's just one more predator I have to protect my kid from. When the son grows up in the new novel and takes that journey through the Hotel of the Thirteen Losses, at the end of it is essentially the emotional and psychic DNA of the universe, which is the loss of a child. That's really at the heart of this book. And as you say, it is picking up on a theme that really asserts itself in the previous book, uh, The Sea Came In at Midnight. I wanted to talk, too, a little bit about women in your books. Your latest book has a lot of material that is, would be difficult to, to discuss on the radio, but let's, let's take a shot at okay. it. Control issues. Women asserting control, women under control. You have almost a mirror image between what happens to Kristen in The Sea Came In at Midnight and what Lulu exerts in our ecstatic days. Tell us a little bit about what you're getting at with that. I think, again, it's something that has sort of been emerging over the course of all the books. I think that if you look at all of my novels— and you look, if you look at all of the the crucial female characters in my novels, from Lauren and Days Between Stations to the the South American girl in Rubicon Beach to to Adania in uh, Tours of the Black Hawk to Sally in Arctex to Viv in Amnesia Scope to Kristen in these last two books, at the center of every single book, uh, the the most the crucial character, the, what I'll call the catalytic character the one who really kind of sets things in motion, is a defiant female, is a, a woman who is chafing at the ways that the world tries to subjugate her. And the sea came in at midnight. Kristen, just just in order to survive, found herself in, in a, a sexually subjugated role in a relationship that then produced the son who is in the new book, Our Ecstatic Days, so that when she feels like she's lost the sun in Our Ecstatic Days, it seemed natural to me that she would try to exert some control over a chaotic universe by placing herself in a sexually dominant role. In all of your books, in all of your tension between chaos and order. Coincidence, fate, destiny, and to a certain extent, name games, characters with the same names, similar names, derivation names, play a part. I'm wondering if you are aware of the work of Charles Fort? No, I don't think so. Okay. Charles Fort wrote a book called The Book of the Damned. And oh, I've, I, I, I've got this book, actually. Uh, a good friend of mine named Michael Ventura gave, gave me this book. It was given to to me for exactly the reason you you just said that Michael said, "Here's a book you're going to understand." Uh, so uh, I'm I'm looking forward to reading it, but uh, but I've not read it yet. 
let's talk a little bit about journalism. You spend a lot of time doing journalism. You write uh, music reviews, uh, film reviews. Tell us a little bit about the tension between going back between forth between writing journalism, writing reviews of art, and then producing it yourself. Yeah, that's a good question, and I and and, and there certainly is a tension. I don't consciously adopt one voice or another when I write one when I write fiction or when I I'm writing criticism. I have to think that I'm I'm my writing I'm sort of tapping into to different parts of who, whoever I am as as a writer. When it comes to writing criticism, if I'm reviewing a movie or a piece of music or a book, there's no way that that can't be informed by having been on the other side of the process. I constantly grapple in my criticism with whether I'm tough enough or too tough when I'm writing about or when I'm critiquing that somebody else has done because I know what what goes into making any work of art whether it's it's good or or bad or otherwise I think you know the one thing the good and bad thing about journalism it concretizes both your thinking and your writing and it compels you to be more straightforward and to be a little more linear and to be a little less vague, and to be a, a little better observed. And and I think in the case of, of my particular fiction, that's probably been a good thing. The bad thing about journalism, and you become aware of this only after you've done it for a while, is that just as it concretizes your thinking and your writing, it conventionalizes it too. And I think that as American journalism, as American print journalism lurches more and more toward the uh, superficial, that becomes dangerous. Tell us a little bit, too, about your last two works of nonfiction. Well, I've written two, two works of, of nonfiction, ostensibly, called uh, Leap Year and American Nomad, uh, which were about about politics, American politics, and, and American pop culture. Both were set against the backdrop of presidential campaigns, and both have kind of literary, even memoir kind of aspects. They've sort of served as transitions in my fiction in certain ways that I didn't anticipate when I, I was writing them. They forced me to, for all of the literary sensibility of both books, they they forced me out of my own head to a certain extent. And that, that was good. Are you planning another one? Well, I, I would probably love to return to it, and we'll see. You know, I mean, the, the two campaigns I wrote about before were 1988 and 1996. So I'm, now I say I, I only write books about boring campaigns. I don't write about the exciting campaigns. <laughs> I didn't write about uh, 2000. I didn't write about 1992. I didn't, I didn't write about this last one. And I can't imagine that the 2008 is going to be boring. But that, that's what I thought about 1988. I was wrong. Tell us a little bit about your work as an editor. How did Black Clock come into being? Why did you create it? What are you on about with this? Well, I was sort of commissioned to create it by uh, Cal Arts, which is an art school down in, in uh, Southern California where I teach writing uh, at the graduate level. And 
I think the idea is something along the lines of what a bar does with conjunctions. Um, uh, it, it was a way. It was a way to help put uh, the CalArts Writing Program, which is a relatively young program, about f 10, 12, 15 years old or so, a way to put it on the map. And so they came to me and they asked me if I would, you know, if I I would start this uh, literary magazine. It sounded like a lot of fun. I said, sure. You know, we've, we've only put out two issues so far, uh, but uh, the third one will be out next month. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Who's going to be in it? In the next one, we have uh, Richard Powers. We have uh, William T. Volman. We have Maureen Howard. We have Joanna Scott. We have Rachel Resnick, Jeff Nicholson. We have Michael Ventura, Joseph McElroy. And then we have a, a lot of writers who, who've never been published before. And I would hope that the magazine gets more and more, moves more and more toward that. I'm honored and humbled to have published writers of the stature of Powers and, and, and David Foster Wallace and Jonathan Lethem and, and Rick Moody and, and people like that. And I, I want to go on publishing them, but I would like the magazine to become to become a place where where writers who can't find a can't find a home can can get their work out out there so i th i think it's going it's going fairly well so far i wanted to talk a little bit about the publishing world i'm wondering if you think that publishers are on the same course that the music business is on in other words in the midst of self-destructing, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I think New New York Publishing is I won't say it's on, on its way out because it, it will always be a place. It, it will always be the place where quote big unquote books, commercially speaking, get published. But in terms of uh, you know, for lack of a better word, for, forgive the grandiosity, but in terms of literature. The New York publishing world is in the grips of the same sort of blockbusterism that defines the music world or defines the uh, movie world, which is to say they've gotten to the strange place where, you know, they'd rather publish a $250,000 novel than a $25,000 novel. It's so some, so somehow that's that that seems less risky and the downside of it is that um you know smaller literary novels have fewer and fewer places to go and i think that that any smart publisher and smart editor in new york will tell will tell you exactly what i've just said i don't think there's you know a great secret about it so the question is is there an indie movement in book publishing that's the that's the equivalent of the independent music movement or the independent movie movement. Uh, some response to all of this that will become, you know, whether it's the 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 McAdam cages in 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 the Bay Area or or um, you know some of the literary magazines that are coming out. That will provide a, a haven for all of the for for for. Books, not only of, of the length you're talking about, but uh, moderate length, books by well-known literary, renowned writers who are finding less and less of a reception in New York. 
And it's interesting. You mentioned McAdam Cage. They just had a, a phenomenal success with That's right. The Time Traveler's Wife by That's Audrey right. Niffenegger, first novel. So there's a, actually quite a bit of potential for these guys to rise up. Right, and I, I, I think, you know, I think in a, in a in a mass technology age or a mass communication age when, when you've got the Internet and all of this, I, I think that that becomes potentially more true. Novels like Our Ecstatic Days and The Sea Came In at Midnight might really benefit in some ways from hypertext renditions. Is that something that you as a writer would be interested in pursuing? I don't know exactly what that means. Well, a hypertext would mean that you could have a a word or a name that would be a highlight where when you clicked on it, you oh, could bring right, up right, right. A, a reference or it would take you back to the the part in The Sea Came In at Midnight where this character was introduced. Right. Well, well uh, I mean, creatively, I, I uh, that that makes complete sense. I'm, um, I'm, I'm such a, a computer idiot that I would have no idea how to go about that. But if somebody else wanted to do that, I think that's, I, you know, I, I, I think that's really interesting where you, you know, the idea of, of, of these interconnecting realities between the various books and, and, you know, the, these sort of black holes in each book that you can, you, you can go down and come out the other side in another book. That's fascinating. Yeah. We've been speaking with Steve Erickson. We've just plunged down the black hole <laughs> of his books and emerged out the other end. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Hey, Rick, thank you.